We sang a chorus, and it says, And I shall see him face to face. Amen? Amen. And when you see him face to face, you'll tell the story, Saved by Grace. Amen? There will be no boasting in heaven. There will be no telling the Lord what we did to get there, because we did nothing to get there. And so our salvation is based on uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. And it ties in with the, uh, the message that we want to uh, bring this morning. Do you realize that if you believe that this morning, that you are in the minority, even in the church, you're in the minority, okay, the professing church? So we're looking at a third parable this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 13 again. Matthew chapter 13. There is a proverb that says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Jesus told the two parables that we looked at over the last two weeks. And his disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It has not been given. This is uh, verse 11, or verse 12 now of chapter 13. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and for your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as we look at the parable this morning, all of you will hear it with your physical ears. But some of you may not perceive it. Some of you may not understand it. When we hear God's word and we act upon it, God gives us better hearing. When we see something in God's word and we take action on it, God gives us more eyesight, better eyesight to see more of his word and to understand and appreciate it. When we hear and ignore, God takes away our understanding. God takes away our sight. It's true of what happened to Israel, and it's true today as well. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read the third parable today. Matthew 13, 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's it. That's the whole parable. And we can't go to the end of the chapter this time to find the answer to this one. That is the entire parable, no explanation. So, it's a harder parable to interpret because of that. Jesus doesn't explain this one to his disciples. So we have to do a little digging ourselves. So the question is... Let's go back to what we've started with in each of the parables in the last two weeks. We start with observation. What do we have in this passage? Tell me, what, what do you see? You see a mustard seed. 
You see a man. A field. A bunch of birds. Okay? That's pretty much it. Okay, there is a tree, but that's, that came from the seed. So there are two keys to understanding this passage. First is the size of the mustard seed, which is called the smallest seed. It would be the smallest seed that they would know um, about, the, the mustard seed, a very tiny seed um, to, to plant. It's the least of all seeds, and it grows all out of proportion to its humble beginnings. It says that it's the smallest seed. When it's planted, it grows to be like a tree compared to all the other herbs in the garden. So that humble beginning spreads out so that it has branches large enough for birds to come and nest in it. So the other key is that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Once again, the Lord is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And so as we said last week, the kingdom of heaven includes believers, true believers, those who have by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have placed their trust in him alone for their salvation. And it includes those who simply profess to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their king uh, or that he is supreme. Uh, This parable represents the same period of time in the kingdom of heaven as we looked at last week. It is the interim period. It's the period in which we find ourselves presently. It is a time when the king is no longer on the earth. He is in heaven. It is a time that we are waiting for the king to come back and to establish his kingdom on earth. And he will establish his kingdom for the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. But right now, the king is rejected, and he's in heaven. He is about to return for his bride, the church, those who are true believers. And after the marriage supper of the Lamb, he will return to the earth to set up his uh, kingdom on the earth. So during this interim period, the kingdom will grow all out of proportion to its humble beginnings. It was like a mustard seed planted. And um, it's amazing in its size in comparison to its original size. So the parable really is about the amazing growth of the kingdom. But what about the birds? What are the birds? The parable is told in the context of two other parables, right? So the first parable that we looked at two weeks ago was the parable of the sower and the seeds. And if you remember, there were birds in that parable too. Do you remember what they represented? Satan, right. And what did Satan do in that case? Remember the sower went out and sowed the seeds and some landed on the hard soil? And what happened? Well, they didn't die. The birds actually came, took them away. Okay? So the birds, Jesus said, represented Satan. And so he came, and as the gospel was preached, he would come and swoop down and basically take it out of the heart of of the listener. That never had a chance to germinate, never had a chance to grow. The point is the birds represented Satan uh, in that parable. So in the context, the only other place where birds are mentioned was two parables ago. And so we'd have to assume that that's what he's talking about here as well. Jesus said in, that par- in uh, Luke 8:12 that the birds pictured in that first parable referred to the devil who comes and takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. Christendom. Christendom is made up of those who profess to believe and those who possess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Just as we saw in the parable of the wheat and tares, we have these two groups growing together simultaneously. And the Lord, in His own wisdom and purposes and plans, has chosen not to uproot the tares, but to leave them until the end of the age where the angels will come and and sort things out. It is also during this period of time that the church exists. So the church is actually part of the kingdom at the, at the same time. The true church. We want to talk about that for, for just a minute again. When I say the word church, I'm not talking about the building that we're putting up next door. Okay? I'm not talking about this building. The church is you and me. 
we, uh, we had a sign. I, I said to Lita the other day, she was talking to her Sunday school class and, and uh, talking about the church. And she explained verbally to the class, I heard her, what the church is. And, I, and uh, as I was walking through the class, I said, I guess we better take down that sign on her, on her classroom wall that said, we come to church. I said, it's actually the church who comes to the building. So we have to remove uh, that from our thinking even. Because we often talk about that, the church, the church, the church. And we talk, we're talking about a building. It's not a building. It doesn't matter where we meet. We could meet in a park. The Lord doesn't care. He's not interested in the building. He doesn't care anything about the construction at all, in a sense. I mean, he does, but it's not important to him. What's important to him is the souls of men and women that he has saved by his grace. Those are the ones who make up the true church, those who have faith in him alone uh, for their salvation. And so we have the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter preached the gospel to a crowd and thousands of people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ on that first day. Uh, They trusted him as their personal Savior and Lord. And thus the church was born. When you think about it, who could be concerned about a timid bunch or a timid band of, of frightened believers that had first met in an upper room kind of cowering from what might happen to them? What could ever come out of that? Well, apart from the Holy Spirit, nothing. But filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, it says in Acts chapter 5, they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. And in one generation, it was said of them, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The small beginnings would be like a mustard seed. But as it grew, it spread out its branches and filled the world, as it were. And as it grew, the the birds of the air came and roosted or nested in its branches. By the way, that's not good. That's not good. The evil in this parable called the birds is symbolized elsewhere in Scripture as the gates of hell. Okay, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When birds roost, um, what happens? Well, they found a, a resting place. They found a place to nest. They found a place to call home. If the birds represent Satan, that's not good. That he has found a resting place, a home within the professing church. That's not good. And they grow and they multiply. So there are two lessons that I want to learn from uh, the passage today. One is that we need to be aware of the condition of the kingdom of heaven at this time in history. And secondly, we need to repent of any sin that would make our hearts or our local assembly, a place where the birds would feel at home. In Revelation 18.2, there is a cry. It says, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, Babylon, the greatest fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Well, I want to share with you a, a brief history of Christendom this morning. Um, and, and I want you to see historically how this parable has played out historically. Uh, there are seven periods of church history that are represented by the seven churches uh, in, in the book of Revelation. These churches in Revelation were literal churches in Asia, but they also correspond to seven periods in church history. And so before we get into that, I've asked, uh, we found a, uh, a video that I'd like to show you. In it, we see actually, it's not just about Christendom, but it shows you the spread of religion in the world. But I want, I want you to see the whole, it's about a minute and a half, and uh, we'll talk about it in, uh, after we uh, show it. Is it on? Okay.
32 AD. If you're not following the bottom, this is the spread of Christianity. Right around 600 AD. Well, 570. So we see the green representing Islam as it spreads throughout the Middle East, and then Christianity, Buddhism uh, spreading uh, throughout the world as well. So we're about the 1800s, roughly, 17, 1800s and up to the present day. So this is just a repeat, just showing you quickly what uh, we went through. Now, just looking at that picture, uh, is it possible, Luke, to just go to that last picture and, and just hold it up on the screen for a minute? Just, and just... Stop it there, more or less. Okay. Notice that the coloring here um, shows in, in the purplish-blue color is the spread of Christianity. We'll call it Christendom. How many of you believe that all of North America and all of South America, Russia, most of Africa, is actually Christian today? Okay? None of you. I don't see a single hand going up. All right. So this simply means how far has it spread, really, is what, and, and the predominant religion, if you will, of the, uh, of the era or of the time, how far it has spread. Nobody believes that, that we have 100% Christianity in North America, South America, and so on, okay? But it, pictorially, it gives you kind of an idea of, of how the church spread uh, through history, or even the kingdom spread through history. All right, so um, we're going to ask you to take out a pen, pencil, crayon, whatever you have. Yeah, it's fine, whatever you got. Can I ask you to help hand those up for me? And, John, maybe I could get you to do this side here. Matt, would you be willing to? Um, okay, I, I don't have any more, but if you uh, would you mind doing a few photocopies? You have some extras? Okay. Okay, that's the original. If you want to do some copies, there, let me take those two and I'll pass them on. Who else need needs any? Okay, could you just some in the back over there? Okay, well let's get started on it. Um, the first period of uh, the history here is the Apostolic Church, A-P-O-S-T-O-L-I-C, from 33 A.D. to 100 A.D., and it's represented in the book of Revelation by the church at Ephesus in Revelation 1, 1 through 7. Now, we've mentioned the small beginning and the dramatic expansion of the church during this period of time. Thousands of people heard the gospel message, trusted the Lord, and were added to the church. Um, but the birds even came then. The church, uh, the early church was faced with evil doctrine almost immediately. The gospel, first of all, went out to the Jews, and it went out to the Gentiles. But some who were called Judaizers uh, wanted to put the Gentiles under the law. And they said, well, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is good as far as it goes, but you also need to be circumcised. And that whole issue 
that we see in the book of uh, Galatians addressed this um, this problem. This attempt to mingle Judaism with the Christian message was a poisonous message. It was a message of faith in Christ plus our works. And it undermined the purity of the gospel message that is faith alone in Christ's finished work on the cross. The evil doctrine was the doctrine of demons, and it exists even to this day. So-called churches that preach a gospel of faith plus works carry on this evil today. When a so-called Christian group uh, promotes faith in Christ plus baptism, or faith in Christ plus communion, or faith in uh, in Christ plus keeping the Sabbath, or faith in Christ plus following dietary laws, or faith in Christ plus circumcision, or faith in Christ plus anything else. When they preach that way, they pervert the simplicity and the purity of the gospel message. And they forsake the gospel of grace. And if a person believes that they are saved by faith plus something else, they are not saved at all. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would come in. He says, For I know this, that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. If you have a, if you want to put your finger in uh, Revelation 2, or or Revelation 1, I should say, pardon me, Revelation 2, um, we will refer back to that passage over and over again throughout the rest of the sermon. In Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the Lord Jesus commends this early church for their tireless labor, their works, their patience. He says that they had discovered that there were false prophets among them, and they showed them to be liars. It says they fought against the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, we're not entirely sure of uh, who they are, but it's likely just by, the, by their name that they uh, represent a group who began to try to instill uh, this, this clergy-laity system into the uh, thinking of the believers. There was a man early on, in this, and he's named in the Scripture. His name is Demas, and he loved the preeminence. He wanted to be chief muckymuck in the church. He wanted to be number one, and uh, he, he was sorely rebuked. So they recognized, this early church recognized that evil birds were trying to roost, if you will, and they shooed them off. But in the fray, the Lord noticed that there had been a change in them, the true believers. There had been a change in them. It says they had lost their first love for him. And really, believers, this is the greatest concern, I would say, for uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ has. He uses that well-worn phrase here in Revelation as well. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Can I ask you this morning? Have you lost your first love for the Lord Jesus? Is your love for him as hissing hot as the day you first believed? Do you remember that time when you came to him? Do you remember that time when you saw your sins? You saw your need? <laughs> I do. Have you lost your first love? Have the things of this world, the demands for your time, the seduction of riches, the busyness of life, has it sapped your love for the Lord? We can't hide from the Lord. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in our thinking. He hears every conversation, and the Lord 
is jealous for your love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Jesus said, repent and do the first works or else I will come quickly, uh, come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's the early church. The next church that the Lord looks at is historically is the persecuted church. And we see that in uh, a time frame of around 101 to 312 A.D., the church of Smyrna, found in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. This is a period in church history that is marked by terrible, terrible persecution. From the Roman emperor Trajan to Diocesan, believers were crucified, They were burned at the stake. They were tortured. They were mutilated. They were starved. They were thrown to wild beasts. Or they were forced to uh, be involved with brutal gladiatorial contests. There was a disciple of John the Apostle at this time. His name was Polycarp. He was a church leader. And he was martyred in this town, Smyrna. This is the town where he was martyred. And it's the town where the Lord sends his second message in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. The the church during this period of history suffers no less than 10 major persecutions. The most serious of these occurred from 303 to 311 and is now called the Great Persecution of Diocletian. He ordered Christian buildings and the homes of Christians to be torn down, to take their sacred books, to be collected and burned, and the Christians themselves were denied the protection offered to other citizens of the Roman uh, government or the Roman law. And yet, the church continued to grow and enthusiastically spread the word throughout Europe Britain, North Africa, and the rest of the known world. Satan's efforts to destroy them only made them flourish. And you know, this is still true today. When the church is persecuted, the church actually grows. When uh, the church in China was forced underground, the church flourished. I believe that there was a missionary, I can't remember the exact story, exactly who it was, who uh, met with some Chinese uh, um, brothers and, and sisters in the Lord. And he said, you know, we're praying for you. He said, we're praying that the Lord would cease the persecution. He says, oh, please, the, the Chinese brothers said, please don't pray that way. We're praying for you that the Lord would bring persecution to you. He said, because the church is flourishing in China, the underground church is flourishing. And he said, we see what is taking place in America. And he says, it's time for persecution. And you know, the church has always grown. It has always been purified during times of persecution. It was no different here at this time period. If you read this passage in Revelation, there is no rebuke. No rebuke to this church. Only commendation. Suffering is not to be sought after. It's certainly not something, I think, to pray for. But it is certainly, it certainly has a purifying effect. And it's better for us, spiritually speaking, to undergo that kind of purifying. The third church is the compromised church, 313 to 600 AD. The church of Pergamos in uh, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. This era actually begins with a very strange event. On the eve of a great battle near Rome, the Battle of Milvian, uh, Milvian Bridge, Constantine looked up into the sun and he saw what he thought was a sign in the sky. And uh, Luke, have you got a picture of, of what he thought he saw? Okay, that's what he thought he saw. XP. Anybody know what that means? It's actually the first two letters of Christ um, in, in Greek. And uh, he, he saw what 
that's what he thought he saw in the uh, above the sun. And um, he described it as a cross of lights above the sun. And he claims that he saw the words in Greek, by this, conquer with this sign. And he immediately commanded his troops to adorn their shields with the symbol uh, called Chiro, uh, representing the first two uh, letters in the Greek name for, for Christ, XP. Constantine happened to win a resounding battle the next day and was convinced that the God of the Christians had favored him by giving him victory and confirming his rule as emperor of Rome. And so the normal custom or the customary practice of a conquering emperor was to come back to his town and to um, uh, celebrate uh, through pagan celebrations. And they were all ready for this. And he ignored them entirely. He went right past all of this and he wanted nothing to do with the celebrations. He immediately ignored them uh, following this victory. As a result of the victory, um, Constantine uh, restored to the Christians their legal rights in, uh, in Rome. And uh, they began to um, be favored, actually, by him and by the state. So the state no longer persecuted Christians. In fact, it protected uh, believers. Well, as a result of this, pagans entered into the church in droves. Hey, let's go where whoever's being favored, let's go there. And so many, many people came into the church at the time. Uh, pagan temples were co- converted into Christian meeting places. Soldiers were baptized in mass by uh, by uh, um, churches, and the church really had, in a sense, married the states. By the way, uh, this third letter in Revelation is to the church of Pergamos. Pergamos means many times married, okay, or or much married. The Lord commended the church of this era um, for one reason, because they were in the midst of Satan's territory. It was the time of emperor worship where Satan's throne was and where he dwells. They also suffered, he says in Revelation, the martyrdom of Antipas. We don't know anything about this person, but we know from this passage that he was martyred. But because of the church and state union, the doctrine of Balaam was introduced. Who was Balaam? Well, Balaam was a hireling prophet from Israel's history who had corrupted Israel um, by encouraging intermarriage with heathen women and idolatry. And so the church was infected, as it were, with this pagan lifestyle uh, of those in Pergamum. Christians were compromising the clear teachings of the Scripture by marrying unbelievers, and they were embracing pagan practices by allowing teachers to corrupt, false teachers to corrupt them. The mustard seed plant that had had such a small beginning was growing again, and the birds of the air were taking refuge in its branches. It says they also accepted those who taught the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Again, the term means conqueror of the people. There arose at this time a class of people who were, you had the common Christians, and then you had this class over them, which we call priests. Okay? Nowhere do you find this in the scripture of this kind of class of, of believers. We are kings and priests, all believers, young or old, new or long time with the Lord. But there is no class of people who stands between God and the people. And the simplicity of the New Testament church uh, changed. Constantine himself, emperor, uh, presided over the Nicene Council in 325 A.D. The bishop of Rome was given preeminence over all other bishops. They began to teach that Peter was the first pope. That would have been a surprise even to Peter. And it was introduced and it was taught that he transferred the power of supreme leader of the church uh, to subsequent bishops of Rome. The division of clergy and laity, priests and people, 
was fully entrenched at this time. Clergy were now a special priesthood. Other pagan practices were introduced at this time as well, including the worship of dead saints in 394 A.D., the veneration of Mary in 431. Priests began to dress differently than laity in 500. The doctrine of purgatory in 593. Masses held in Latin, 600. Prayers to Mary, 600 A.D. All of these were decreed by a church with the full backing and power of the state. Constantine supported uh, the Roman Catholic Church financially and built numerous basilicas. Much of the wealth was endowed to the church at this time. God calls his people. There are some, even during this period of time, who are true believers, and he calls the church to repent. What would it mean to repent in this situation? It would mean to expel those who had compromised the church with these evil doctrines. It would, it would, uh, for all these evil practices, the Lord Jesus calls upon true believers to repent, turn away from these practices. These are practices the Lord clearly says here that he hates. That term is seldom used of the Lord Jesus. The fourth era in this, uh, in historically is the paganized church. It's a very long period of time. It's from 601 to 1516 A.D., represented by the church of Thyatira in uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Again, the Lord starts with a um, commendation. He commends them for their work, their love, their service, their faith, their patience, and that these things were actually increasing. However, they had become like pagans by following the teachings of a woman named or like Jezebel. Contrary to the scripture, they had given her a place uh, in the church to teach and to seduce. It was rampant sexual immorality and idolatry that infected the church at this time, the professing church. The professing church was living at this time just like the world. Very, very little different. Perhaps it was under the guise of grace. You know, Paul addressed this um, early on in the Christian, uh, in his writings. The question came up, if God has saved us by grace, in other words, we sinned, and God, by his grace, paid for the price in full uh, at the cross, then that magnifies his grace, doesn't it? Sure, if he, if he saved us by his grace, it's, it, it magnifies his grace. Well, doesn't it go without saying then that we should continue to sin all the more? Because we'll just be magnifying his grace all the more. That's the kind of teaching that was being uh, taught during this period of time. And Paul says, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say? God forbid. <laughs> Absolutely not. And the Lord Jesus had given plenty of time for them to repent, but judgment was about to come. It's interesting in this passage that he is described, Jesus is described here as eyes as a flaming fire and feet like bronze, which is a sign of judgment. Because of the lack of repentance, there would be a time of great tribulation for her and for those who followed her teaching. But there were some, a remnant, who did not follow this practice. You know, if you were to actually trace the true church during all of this time, you would find this, that there has always been a small minority within professing Christendom or Christianity, a small minority who are true believers. They have always stood faithful. They have always stood true to the Lord from the beginning with the disciples all the way through to this present day. They're a minority even within the church. Just as Christianity, in a sense, is a minority in the world, within that, the true church, true believers, are a very small minority. But the Lord knows who really are His. Again, the Lord counsels, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. During this period of history, apostasy grew, and it's a time that we call today the Middle Ages. And it was a a strengthening 
of the false gospel of the Catholic Church. During the 10th and 11th centuries, we have what we call the Dark Ages, marked by ignorance, superstition, and corruption. Paganism reigned, and the Lord allowed the so-called Christian church to be plowed under by Muslims. If you, re- if you remember seeing the, the uh, film here, or the little clip, you saw the color shift. And as the color shifted, it was Muslims that were actually beginning to have a real impact uh, in the whole uh, Middle East area and areas where once were, uh, were clear testimonies for the gospel were actually overtaken by um, Muslims. Islam was founded uh, by Muhammad. He claimed to be God's final prophet. Muslims conquered the Middle East, uh, Spain, North Africa, much of uh, parts of India and Southeast Europe uh, before being stopped at Vienna. Well, they're not really stopped. <laughs> Still much in it uh, today. But you ask yourself the question as, as you watch just the shift over history. Was this divine judgment against the professing church? There was, at this same time, misguided efforts by military power called the Crusades. They did more to provoke wrath and hatred and left a a terrible mark in history of the uh, professing church bearing arms. But as the Lord indicates in this passage, and as, as I mentioned before, it's always been true. There is a remnant. There are people who are faithful, a faithful remnant. Some who come to my mind at this period of time are people like John Wycliffe. Do you know who John Wycliffe is, by the way? Can I tell you something about him? You are blessed this morning by John Wycliffe. Do you know who John Wycliffe is? Who is he? Yeah, first English Bible. Translated the Bible into English, first one. Okay, we've come from uh, what we hold in our hands is precious, really uh, took place at this time. He uh, not only translated the Bible into English, but he fought against the established church. You know what happened to him? Yeah, <laughs> he was put out as a, a heretic. Later, he was brought back in as being OK. Later, he was put out as a heretic. After he was dead, he was put out as a heretic again. They, they exhumed his body and burned his bones. That was the established church. That was Christendom. That wasn't the true church who did that. John Huss, who also preached against the corruption of the church, was burned at the stake. The climax of the corruption during this period of time uh, was the widespread sale of what the Catholic Church called indulgences. By the, it was uh, to build St. Peter's Church in Rome. I've been to St. Peter's Church in Rome. It is an unbelievable um, building. I mean, it, it just the amount of money that it would have taken to build that building and to ordain it as it is, uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. It was built... Um, by those who purchased indulgences with the promise that those who paid for them would be given complete remission of sins. In other words, they were buying salvation. Can you buy salvation with money? No, you can't. We are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can save us. And yet the church had become so corrupt. Again, the professing church. I have to keep saying that. The professing church had become so corrupt that it was selling salvation for a price in order to build cathedrals and uh, monstrosities for itself. So disgusted with this evil in the Catholic church, an Augustinian Catholic monk wrote a protest in the form of 95 Theses and nailed it to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, in 1517, thus beginning the Protestant, well, actually, thus beginning the protest, okay? That's what Protestant means, protest. What are they protesting? They're pro- he's protesting the, the sale of indulgences. He's protesting the corruption that he saw in his own church. Martin Luther was a Catholic. 
And beginning the protest, what we now call the Protestant Reformation. The name of that monk was Martin Luther. The next is the Reformation Church, 1517 to 1700. It's the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. The Lord Jesus rebukes this church because of lifelessness. It had a name that it was alive, but it was dead. Now, the Roman Catholic Church was the main face of the church at this time. There's no getting around that. Remember, however, that, as we said, God always has a remnant. This is the church Jesus is rebuking in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. He says this, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This is the church that spawned Martin Luther to call for repentance of the practices within the Catholic Church. Those practices remain to this day. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said. You are dead. Okay? There's no life there. You're not going to find salvation in following the practices of the Catholic Church. Catholicism cannot produce life. It's dead. The Lord Jesus calls upon the church of this era, repent. And then the Lord reminds us, however, that you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Isn't that amazing? Even in the midst of this church, there are a few who have not defiled their garments. It's interesting that the name Sardis means those who are escaping or renovation, what we call reformation, but renovation or those who are escaping. It was during this period that the reformation took hold and three major questions were brought forth. One, what must I do to be saved? The answer is that we are, it is justification by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, not by works of any kind. Two, second question, what is the final authority in matters of the Christian faith? The answer is right here, the Bible alone. That's it. If you want the answer to, to uh, all of your questions concerning faith and living the Christian life and so on, it's right here. No other source. We don't trust the Bible plus what the church tells us. It's what God has said in His Word. It's not the Bible plus church tradition. It's not the Bible plus church decrees. It's the Bible alone. Matters of the Christian faith. Third, who will lead God's people? The answer is that we are not to be led by a special priesthood or a pope. We don't see that in the Scripture. That's man-made. It's made up. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. Now, although there was a protest against the abuses in the Catholic Church, uh, the Reformers did not completely rid themselves of unbiblical elements in their own theology. As we trace Lutheranism, guess where that came from? Martin Luther. And as we trace Calvinism, Anglicanism and and so on. We see state-controlled churches. They never shed themselves of that. Um, Many people consider themselves to be Christians simply because they were baptized in the state church. Uh, Some of you may have actually been born in countries where you had a state religion. In other words, it was a religion of the country. You were Christian because you were from a Christian country. Does does being born in a Christian country make you a Christian? Is there such a thing as a Christian country? (laughs) What is that? Many adopted uh, Christianity because of that. Many of the churches, as Jesus said, are dead. And so the appeal again is repent. Salvation cannot be found in an ecclesiastical formula, a baptism into a church or a national religion. Salvation is found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number six, the awakened church, 1701 to 1900. The church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Yeah, you know that from the city of Philadelphia in the U.S. Love for the brethren. 
You know, I love this church. If I could replay my time in history, I'd like to be in this time. (laughs) But that's not where God has placed me. It's not where God has placed you either. But it's a wonderful time uh, in church history. There's not a single word of rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a period, in a sense, of weakness in the church as far as numbers are concerned of true believers, but of great opportunities And they took advantage of them. And the Lord Jesus said this to them. He says, I will open a door that no man can shut. It's wonderful. And he did. During this period of time, there were so many doors open for the gospel. And the wonderful thing is that true believers stepped through those doors and they began to spread the gospel uh, widely. It's really a great time. God gave an open door for the gospel. Even though they were relatively a small group, there was a band of true believers who were zealous for the work of God. One such work was by Count Zinzendorf. Um, it's very interesting. Notice that the period of time here is from 1701 to 1900. Count Zinzendorf of Germany began a um, 24-hour-a-day prayer chain. So people would come to, to churches and they would pray. And then I, I would be praying and then Joanna would come and tag-team me off. I would go and work, and Joanna would stay and pray, and somebody would tag-team her off, and they would stay and pray. And this went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for 200 years. 200 years. Does it surprise you that this period of time lasted for 200 years as well, during the time when they were praying? doesn't surprise me. The devotion to Christ is legendary, and their missionary zeal unsurpassed. In uh, America, the Lord raised up preachers at this time, such as Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley. We have some of their hymns in our book that we sing uh, Sunday. I noticed this morning um, that we sang one by, um, my mind is totally gone, um, the blind, thank you, Fanny Crosby, who wrote hundreds, thousands, I think, hymns uh, also at this time. There was a, a new zeal for world missions through William Carey to India, Adoniram Judson to Burma, Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission, George Mueller with uh, the orphans, David Livingston to Africa. There were preachers that God raised up at this time, such as Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, Dwight L. Moody, and on and on and on the list goes. It's an amazing time of history. Bible societies were, were uh, raised up at this time to see Bibles translated and printed and distributed worldwide, and good Christian books became more prominent. What a great time for the church. And it was during this time that there was a recapturing of the simplicity of the New Testament assembly as we know it, where there was no longer a division of clergy and laity, but all were brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, we come to our present day. 1901 to our current date here, the Church of Laodicea is represented in Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Laodicea means the people ruling. That cannot be a good thing. The people ruling. Americans love this. The people rule. Canadians do too. You know... It's a, it's a sad, it's a sad commentary in a way that the Jews of Jesus' day basically stood there and shook their fist in his face and we, they said, we will not have this man reign over us. Surely the church would never come to this. But with people ruling, that's exactly what's happened. In fact, it's, it's one of the saddest parts in all of scripture to me. It says this is the church where the Lord Jesus Christ is standing outside the door of the church. Sorry to be so irritating. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, can I come in to my own church? He's not talking about the building, okay? 
we use this verse in Revelation to talk about Jesus outside the heart of unsaved people. It's not, it's not talking about that. It's talking about his own church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This era is marked by another flock of birds who were uh, led by German higher critics who undermined the authority of the word of God. Other names given for this menace include rationalism, modernism, and most recently syncretism. What is syncretism? Syncretism is the attempt to reconcile contrary beliefs while blending practices of various beliefs together. So it's like saying, okay, well, you're Catholic and you're Muslim and I'm Christian and you're from Judaism and, and, and let's just see what we all have in common. Why can't we just all get along? Why can't we just all be friends? Let's forget the things that divide us and concentrate on the things that unite us. You ever heard this? Okay. It's in the paper almost every day. All the programs on television to do with faith and everything else like that. It's syncretism. It's, it's trying to blend and harmonize. Let's all be one. You know? Unfortunately, we're seeing it in the church today. When you do that, you can be neither hot nor cold. You're just kind of lukewarm. You're just kind of bland acceptance of everything. It's the story of the three bears. And in the story of the three bears, that middle ground was totally acceptable. You know, everything was just right. It, but the story of the three bears doesn't fit in the church. The Lord Jesus Christ finds it nauseating. It's kind of an uncomfortable word, isn't it? But he finds the church today, again, the professing church, nauseating. He would prefer that a person be either stone cold against him or hissing hot, but not lukewarm. Not lukewarm. This acceptance of all beliefs and practices and showing tolerance for every new doctrine is enough to make him vomit. And this is what he says. Do you know something? Let me just say this before I read this passage. Do you know that this all-inclusive view actually excludes one person? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Strange as that may sound, that's exactly what happens. When you include it all, you're actually excluding the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. And to the angel, verse 14, and to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, even one ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord today is calling His remnant. He's calling those who have an ear to hear. To hear. To repent. To return. Let's pray.
Lord, as we consider the, the words that you have given to us here in this passage, we come to you, Lord, humbly and, Lord, broken of heart. We see, Lord, in our generation that uh, we are very troubled. We think that we have it all. We have so much that we have forgotten the Lord. Lord, I just cry out to you that if there are any here who have an ear, that this morning they would hear, they would repent, that they might return to their first love, the love of their lover of their soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to live for you in the short days that we have on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.